Tick-tock, tick-tock, thus goes the clock. Real time. We sleep in real time. We eat in real time. We work in real time. We play in real time. But what about our Christian faith? Do we live it out, really, in real time? Join us for the sermon series, Christianity in Real Time. Take your copy of the Word of God and turn to James chapter 1. We finally begin today our study of the book of James, looking at what God teaches us through James about Christianity in real time. How do we, by God's grace, live out this Christian life in the world? If you would uh, be willing to stand, and if you are able to stand, let's honor God in the reading of His holy Inerrant, infallible, and fully sufficient word, James chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded. He is unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich man in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes." so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted When he is lured and enticed by his own desire, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change." Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we bow before you today to thank you for your word that is such a sacred and precious gift and treasure to us. It is in your word that you make known to us who you are. It is in your word that you make known to us who we are. 
It is in your word that you make clear the chasm, the insurmountable chasm between who you are and who we are. And it's in your word that you make known to us so very clearly that we cannot cross that chasm, but you have crossed that chasm in yourself through the coming of your son and all that he was and all that he did so that when by your grace we receive what you have done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, you not only declare us to be right with you forever, you do more than that, far more than that, even though that's enough. You impart to us, living in us, the very gift of yourself in the person and power of the Holy Spirit, who from the moment of our new birth begins compellingly to call us to a life lived under the authority of your word and under the lordship of Jesus. In these days, O God, I would pray as pastor in this place that you would renew us, refresh us, revive us by your spirit through your word that we individually and corporately might settle the question of the lordship of Jesus. That we would bow before him as Lord, that we would acknowledge the supreme, superb, absolute authority of the Bible as your only truth to us that is to shape the way we live our lives. So that about us it could be said that we took Christianity seriously and we sought by your grace and for your glory to live it out in real time. So help us, God, we pray as sinners in need every day of your grace and mercy to learn how to live in light of your grace and mercy and grow in love for you and in obedience to you and in submission to you. We pray in Jesus' name, who alone is Lord. Amen. may be seated. If you have uh, the outline, either uh, in the, from the bulletin or you got it from the website, I want to call your attention to the opening words. I, 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 I want to read them because they lay the foundation for this entire series that we are doing that we began a couple of weeks ago. Now we're looking at the book of James. That will be our focus for some weeks to come. This is the introduction. The way of coming to faith in Jesus can never be disconnected from the way of living faithfully for Jesus to the glory of God. We cannot live faithfully for Jesus until we have come to faith in Jesus and all who have come to faith in Jesus receive from God through Jesus the presence and power of the Holy Spirit living in us and compelling us to live a life of faithfulness to Jesus. Now that's Bible 101. That's 
pre-K language about what it means to come to faith in Jesus and be so transformed that we begin to live faithfully for Jesus, it does not mean that we will not fail. We will. And we do. It does not mean that sometimes we might fall away. Uh, There are things that can happen in all of our lives that cause us for some reason to walk away from Jesus, to walk away from the church, to wander in the wilderness. But, this is a big but, when we truly belong to Jesus, even when we fail and fall away, we cannot remain in the land of failure because we are overwhelmed by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit convicting us of our sin and calling us to repentance and faith. And when we fall away, we can't stay away for long because there is in our hearts this gnawing sense of overwhelming guilt that because we belong to Jesus, we have to be a part of his church and we find our way back home. Genuine biblical Christianity is lived out every day in real time, real circumstances, on real jobs, in real classrooms, in real neighborhoods, in real families. Every day that commitment to the Lordship of Jesus, which is the essence of genuine Christianity, is lived out, or what we would call Christianity is simply not Christianity at all. You may know that in the United States of America, just beyond World War II, we began in many of our churches to preach a gospel that was no gospel at all. But it has become so prevalent and so popular and so powerful because it's so simple that it's become known in America as the gospel. It simply calls people to make a decision for Jesus. Just to ask Jesus into your life, just to accept Jesus as your Savior with no focus, absolutely no focus on the transformation that God always brings into the lives of all who know him and all who know him love him and all who love him seek to serve him and all who seek to serve him seek with all of our hearts to obey him. That is Christianity. Everything else is a bogus form of what is called Christianity. And I believe with all my heart, this doesn't make me angry, it makes me sad, extremely sad, that our churches are often full of people who have believed a false gospel and that false gospel has become the foundation of their lives and they believe with every fiber of their being that they're saved and if they died, they would go to heaven when there's been no real change in their lives. And I'll tell you what else I believe. I believe God has sent us into the time we're in to stir his church to a deep awareness that We don't have control of anything we thought we had control of. And he's calling us to submit ourselves, to surrender ourselves to the absolute and total lordship of Jesus. To settle that question, 
once and for all. And then by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the grace and mercy of God to live that out. No place in the Bible makes this more plain for the entirety of the book than this little letter of James. So we're going to turn our attention for this season to the book of James to hear what God says through his spirit in this book. James, that's how it begins. It's the first book that is in our New Testament canon. It's the earliest book in the New Testament. It's written before the Gospels. It's written before the letters of Paul. It is the first book that we have, written somewhere most likely around A.D. 49. And around A.D. 49 was an extremely busy season for this young church. There were churches being planted all over Asia Minor. Paul and Barnabas, then Paul and Silas, they were going on what we call missionary journeys. They were planting churches, preaching the gospel in places that had never heard the gospel. People were being brought to faith in Jesus Christ. Churches were being established all over Asia Minor. While this was going on, there was a movement of God following Pentecost down in Jerusalem among Jewish people. Many Jewish people were becoming followers of Jesus. So up here in Asia Minor, you had Gentiles becoming Christians. Down in Jerusalem, around Judea, you had Jews becoming Christians. Do you know that in the first century world, Jews did not like Gentiles and Gentiles did not like Jews? Oh, that's much too mild. Jews hated Gentiles and Gentiles hated Jews. Jews referred to themselves as the people of God and everyone else was a Gentile, which meant simply to them, they didn't belong to God. And here God is moving by his spirit through the world to bring Jews to Jesus, to bring Gentiles to Jesus, and to bring them together (laughs) in the same church. And there was confusion, there was conflict, there was disagreement, there was debate. But God was at work to bring these people together of different persuasions who had lived with hostilities toward one another for centuries. He's bringing them together under the lordship of Jesus and they need to learn how not only to live together because living together is not possible unless it emerges out of living under the lordship of Jesus. So God raises up James around A.D. 49 to write this letter. We know that there in the New Testament world, there were probably far more, but we know there were three men named James. But this is most likely the James who was the half-brother of Jesus. Now, this means that, and I think sometimes we forget that Jesus was really human. <laughs> he was a boy before he became a man. And he lived in the home with Joseph and Mary and his brothers and sisters. And one of those brothers was James. Can you imagine being Jesus' brother or sister? Can you imagine? 
Uh, they would go out every day when they were little and they would play all around Nazareth. They would run those narrow alleys and streets. They would go outside the city. They would ascend the hills. They would go down the other side of the hill and play all in the valley of Megiddo. They would run through the wheat fields and the rye fields. They would go to the other side of the valley and ascend Mount Tabor and play on Mount Tabor. And they would come back after they had played all day and Jesus would be lagging behind And James is talking to one of his brothers and says, I can't stand him. He's so perfect. The other brother says, no, he's not. James says, tell me something he's done wrong. He's never done anything wrong. He not only thinks he's perfect, he is perfect. And we get in trouble all the time. They shared the same house, they shared the same areas of play, they shared the same shop with Joseph, their father, they shared maybe even the same pallet upon which they would have slept at night. James did not believe Jesus when he was a boy, he did not believe Jesus when he became a man. He came late to faith in Jesus, but look at how he identifies himself here. Now, the ESV reads this way, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give it to you literally. This is what the original text says. James, of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, a slave. James doesn't care that you know that Jesus was his brother. He would never exploit that in order to give a word to us. This is what he wants you to know. This is what every child of God wants everybody to know about us. Number one, we belong to God. God is the absolute sovereign of our lives. We trust God. We are dependent on God. We're devoted to God. He rules and reigns. We don't. We submit our lives to him. We belong to God. We belong to Jesus. We believe that Jesus of Nazareth, truly human, truly God, is the Son of God who lived a perfect life, was crucified for our sins, took our place upon the cross, shed his blood for us. We belong to Jesus who is the Messiah. But here's what's most important. We belong to Jesus who is the Messiah who is Lord. That's why it's first James of God and the Lord. Everything in my life is controlled by the Lordship of Jesus. I'm under His Lordship, compelled by His Lordship. And I'm a slave. Now the ESV has servant, but the word is not servant. The word is doulos, the word is slave. It's the lowest form of slavery found in the Greco-Roman world. This kind of slave never got any notice. Nobody even knew this slave existed. The slave existed, get this, the slave existed for only one reason. To serve, honor, obey his master. The slave, this kind of slave, had no identity. None, 
except through his master. He didn't even want you to know his name. He wanted you to know that his master is. Listen, as believers, we don't want any credit. We don't care about affirmation. We don't want to be acknowledged. What we want the fellow church members to know, our brothers and sisters and the world to know, is that Jesus is our master, and that's all we care about. This is James. The word slave was used in the Old Testament for those who were servants of God. In the New Testament, it was used for, it was used for pastors. It was used for elders. It was used for deacons. They were called slaves. Do you know in the economy of God, the way God works in the world, the more you elevate in position in a church, the further down you go as a slave. The highest office in a church should be expressed in the lowest form of slavery. If I have to be known here as Dr. Wright, senior pastor, I hate that term, senior pastor. I hate it because it makes me feel old. Senior means that's the old pastor. I hate it. Pastor. Al, that's enough. It should be enough for elders and deacons that we exist to serve the cause of God for the glory of God under the lordship of Jesus Christ. James, of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, a slave to the 12 tribes. He's writing primarily to Jewish Christians because he is a Jewish Christian He's writing to Jewish Christians who've been scattered all over the Roman Empire because of persecution in Jerusalem that had come. Because of the way they were struggling there in their faith and God scattered them all over the world. We read about that beginning in Acts 4, Acts 5, Acts 6 and 7 and so forth. By the way, because he's because he's writing primarily to Jewish Christians and through reasonable inference to all Christians in all churches everywhere throughout all time, because he's writing to Jewish Christians primarily, he often speaks in the third person singular pronoun when he speaks to the church. He speaks to men. Why? Because in the Jewish tradition, who led the synagogue? Men. Who led in the home? Men. And when they became followers of Jesus and entered the church, they were seen to be the leaders of their families and the leaders of the church, so much so that as went the men, so went the family and so went the church. I believe that's still true. To the twelve tribes, greetings... He begins here a technique that he uses throughout James. He ends one section with a word and begins the next section with a similar word. The word greetings in the Greek is karain. Now look at verse 2, count it all joy. The word joy in the Greek is karan. You hear the similarity, karain, karan. He's connecting these two things. He does the same thing in verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, lacking. He uses the same word in verse 5. If any of you lacks 
wisdom. What James is writing about is the Lordship of Jesus. And what he's going to do throughout that I pray by God's Spirit we can see, he's going to show us what Christianity looks like in real time. What does your life as a believer, what does my life look like when it's really lived under the Lordship of Jesus? Warren Wiersbe writes, One of the major problems in the church, even in these early days, A.D. 49, Jesus crucified, A.D. 32, 33, 16 years later, before one generation has passed, one of the major problems in the church, even in these early days, was the failure on the part of many to live what they professed to believe. I'll read that again. One of the major problems in the church, even in these early days, was the failure on the part of many, to live what they profess to believe. And Wearsby continues, because Wearsby said when he wrote these words before his death, that it's still a problem. I want to read to you what he wrote. And if this stuns you or upsets you, remember this is Warren Wearsby, (laughs) this isn't me. But I believe what he writes, every word of it is true. This is what he wrote, quote, one of the (laughs) spiritual maturity is one of the greatest needs in churches today. Too many churches are playpens for babies instead of workshops for adults. The members of many of our churches are simply not mature enough to eat solid spiritual food and have to week by week be given milk. After well over a quarter of a century of ministry, Wearsby concludes, I am convinced that spiritual immaturity is the number one problem in our churches. God is looking for mature men and women to carry on his work, and what he finds in too many of our churches is a bunch of children who can't even get along with one another. So what do we need? Where do we begin James says we begin with wisdom, that what we need is wisdom. So that's where we're going to begin. We're going to come back to verses 2 and 4, but we're going to begin our first sermon in James with verse 5. If anyone lacks wisdom. Well, that begs a question, doesn't it? If anyone lacks wisdom, what is wisdom? Well, in the world in which James lived... There were two views of wisdom. Guess what? In the world in which we live, there are two views of wisdom. It hadn't changed. In the, in the, among the Greeks and Romans, they believe wisdom exists within every human being. We're born with everything we need from birth to get wisdom. It's inside of us. I don't believe that. Well, have you ever said to someone or heard someone say, listen to your heart? Follow your heart. Pay attention to your conscience. Let it be your God. That's what the Greeks and Romans taught. You have within you from birth everything you need 
to get wisdom. The way you get wisdom is by thinking rationally and logically. And what you're thinking about is what is, this is the question, what is best for me in this situation? What is good and right for me in this situation? What will in this situation give me security, safety, and peace? And when I come to what gives me safety, security, and peace, what is right for me and best for me that will protect me and provide me that provide for me, that is wisdom. Do that. Take that course. The Jews and the Word of God in its entirety did not teach that, does not teach that. Wisdom is with God. It's not with us. We're not born with wisdom. We're born in sin. We're born separated from God. We're born thinking that we know what is best for us and right for us. We're born wanting to provide for ourselves and protect ourselves and give safety and security and peace to ourselves. And that's because our entire focus from birth is on ourselves. Wisdom does not reside within us. It resides with God. Well, how is it going to get from God to me? Well, God reveals it. Well, how does he reveal it? He reveals it in his word, which is the absolute truth of God. And the center of his word is Jesus Christ, the Lord. So wisdom comes from God through his word. In order to know wisdom, I have to know God. In order to know God, I have to know his word. In order to know his word, I have to know Jesus Christ as Lord, submit myself to his lordship, and live my life under the authority of God's word and God will give me wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously. The word generously here is a poor translation. The word that's used here is only used here in the entire New Testament, but outside the New Testament, it's used in terms of simplicity, sincerity, without duplicity. When you ask God to give you wisdom and you seek him through his word, by his spirit, speaking through his word, God will give you simply and sincerely, straightforwardly, what is the wisdom of the word of God. He will reveal it to you, show it to you, make it known to you, and he'll give it to you without reproach. That means when you're seeking God for wisdom, God will never, God will never rebuke you. God will never reject you. God will never turn away from you. God will never shake his finger at you because when we're seeking God for wisdom, because we're sinners, we're going to make some wrong choices. We're going to go down some wrong roads. We're going to make some wrong decisions. And it's down those roads where God comes to a place where he wakes us up, turns us around in repentance. And when he turns us around in repentance so that we seek the wisdom that he gives, God doesn't walk up to us and say, I told you so. He never do that. Because he's God. He gives us wisdom without reproach, without rejection, without rebuke. But God tells us, God tells us how we must ask. And here are the contrast in our world, I'm telling you. Here are the contrast. They've been there since Adam. They will be there until Jesus comes back. Let him ask in faith without doubting. The word doubt here means without duplicity. 
the problem of every person in this room. If you're a believer, you sincerely want the wisdom of God. You want God to show you his way through his word. But where do we live every day? In the world. And the world gives us directions about what is best for us that can be completely contrary to what the word of God teaches and we get caught in that duplicity, don't we? And that duplicity, if we don't get it settled in our hearts and minds, can destroy us. Wisdom comes from God through the knowledge of his word. Wisdom comes from learning how to see God's way through God's word. Wisdom comes through experience. Learning wisdom often comes through the experience of failing and falling down. I thought about this this week as a pastor thinking about this church family that I love so much. That one of the things that's happened in our culture is that as people get older, two things happen. As people get older, believers get older, we think, we tend to think as a church, they're not young anymore and they're not hip and cool anymore, so they don't really have anything to give us. Let me tell you what's worse. People get older and say something like this, I've served my time, I've done my thing. Now it's time for the younger people. Who has the greatest wisdom in this church? Young people? 20-somethings? I love young people. I love children. I love the... Who has the greatest wisdom in this church? Believers who've lived faithfully for Jesus in the midst of failure and falling down for a lifetime. And we need that wisdom in this church. We have younger women who need the wisdom of older women. We have younger men who need the wisdom of older men. And we need older women and older women to stand up slowly (laughs) and to step out and say, God has given me a lot to give. I heard one of our young men remind me of something that happened years ago. I'd actually forgotten about this. We had a, and I don't even know whether you remember this, we had a women's meeting here, younger women's meeting in the fellowship hall for weeks on a Monday night where one of our older women came and taught our younger women how to cook. I'm talking about cook, like self-rising flour and lard mixed up with buttermilk, making real biscuits. Not, yeah, I heard an amen on that one. We we need that wisdom. And those who have learned it by God's grace through all kinds of pain and pressure and problems... We ask in faith, not doubting, not duplicitous. We have to be focused on being faithful to Jesus as Lord. Because the doubting person is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Now look at verse 7. 
The person who wants to live, listen to this, friends. This is scary to me. If you want to live under the authority of the Word of God and you acknowledge that, but you want to live in the world too and you know you're living in the world too and listening to the lessons that you're learning from the world, verse 7, that person must not even think that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man. He's unstable in all his ways. But the person of faith... The person of faith lays his life before the feet of Jesus and looks up at Jesus and says, I, I look only to you. You are Lord. I'll open your book. Every day of my life, I will open your book and let your spirit speak to me through this book. I can't learn it overnight. I can't learn it in two years or three years, but over time. And I will listen to those who've gone before me and I will learn from them what you want to teach me. What do we need wisdom for? This is what I'm going to talk about next Sunday. Some of you are going through trials right now. All of us are going through trials in our country. Don't you need wisdom for facing trials? Where are you going to get it from? Where are you going to get it from? Only one place if you're a believer, from the Word of God. Do you need wisdom for living in this time we're living in? Where are you going to get it from? Only one place if you're a believer, the Word of God. Every believer in this room faces temptations every day. Right? I hope I'm not alone. Where are we going to get wisdom for facing temptations? From the Word of God. There is no other source for us. And we're going to get it from the Word of God as we listen to the Word of God and as we share life together One person says, the way of true faith is the way of loving God with our whole heart, mind, and soul. To live in a way where we're seeking to serve God while we're pursuing the ways of this world not only perverts the purpose of God, it does that, but it corrupts our witness to others. It's all about, it's all about the Lordship of Jesus. I believe the world is waiting. The world is waiting for believers who will say, I'm going to give myself so to the authority of God's word under the power of the Holy Spirit that I'm going to seek to do what is necessary to live out the Lordship of Jesus. No matter what it cost me. God has brought his church to such a time as this in America because I don't believe we've had any voice in this country in terms of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I don't think we've had any voice for years and years. None. And he's brought us to these times to find out who in the church will say, Jesus is Lord, and I'm going to live out that Lordship by the grace of God, with the help of others, with the encouragement of others, in the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God.
Why wouldn't we want to do that as a believer when you think about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ? So that we're called, and not only called, but compelled, I believe, to live out what that means in the world. That what matters most to us is that Jesus is Lord, and we want to be gathered together in a church where other people make that affirmation so we can exhort one another and encourage one another. But you know what's happening even in the church? I had somebody ask me this morning, just sitting in the lobby in the Welcome Center, how are you doing? <laughs> I said, you know what you say, fine. And the guy had the, the compassion and the courage enough to say, no, I want to know how you're really doing. I, I've never experienced a harder time in ministry than in recent months because churches are divided some of you you wear mask let me change the pronoun some of us because you sounds accusatory some of us wear mask and those of us who wear mask believe that all God's children who are right with Jesus ought to wear mask some of us don't wear mask and us who don't wear masks, to be totally ungrammatical, us who don't wear masks think if we really love Jesus, we wouldn't wear masks. We have no middle ground to meet. None. Some of us think that everybody and their grandfather and grandmother and grandchildren ought to be vaccinated. Some of us think, I don't think so. We have no middle ground. Some of us are so politically alienated from one another, we don't know how to even treat one another anymore. We've even created a condition in this culture that if you're a Republican, there are churches that you ought to go to because everybody's there just like you. And if you're a Democrat, there are churches that you ought to go to because everybody there is just like you. And the church, the church, frankly, is meant to be a place where what binds us together is our love for and loyalty to Jesus Christ as Lord. And none of that other stuff. So could we remember today that the central heart and soul of who we are as a church is that we really do believe Jesus is Lord? And we really do want to live that out. And most days we limp in our efforts. Some days we crawl and some days, frankly, we fall flat on our face. But aren't you glad that on that day when you fall flat on your face and you think there's no hope for you, the grace of God that reached down to put Jesus on that cross is the same grace that reaches unto you and picks you up. Let us pray. Father, one day all that we are and desire to be will be perfected by you. You will bring into being the new heaven and the new earth and we will live with you and reign with you forever and ever. But until that day, 
until that day, we want to live in such devotion to you that it is clear that what defines us are not those issues that have no eternal value. What defines us is we want to love you, we want to serve you, we want to honor you, we want to worship you, we want to obey you. And at some level, that begins by our learning how to love and embrace one another with all of our uniquenesses and with all of our differences, our perspective on these temporal issues. Because what matters most to us is that we are family, that you are our father, that Jesus is our elder brother, and that we belong together in his family. And thank you for being able to covenant that together as your people. Forgive us when we fail you. Forgive us when we fall down. Forgive us when we're unfaithful. We thank you, Lord, for the richness of your grace and mercy in Jesus, and we pray in his name. Amen.